Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons Podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Multi-State Monday. I am Deanna Hayes. I'm a shareholder in Ogletree's Tampa office, and I am one of the co-chairs of the Multi-State Advice and Counseling Practice Group. But we are excited to kick off our program for 2024. Today, I have the pleasure of having uh, my co-chair, Lucas Asper, here, along with Susan Gorey, who's a member of our practice group, and she's been a co-host on some of our past episodes. So I'll let them quickly say hello. Hey, Deanna and Susan and everybody out there. Pleasure to join you for this episode of the podcast. And and as co-chair of the group, really looking forward to, to kicking off 2024 with a great year for this group and for the firm and for everybody out there listening. Yes, and I'd like to say welcome as well to our listeners. 2024 is certainly teeing up to be a very interesting year. So with that, I am going to kick it to both of you for the big question of the day. What are some of the biggest issues employers are going to face in 2024? So thanks, Susan. I think that's really a loaded question, right? So one of the goals today is to give an overview of the top issues that multi-state employers might consider tracking for 2024. And hopefully we'll get the opportunity to have you join us again for more in-depth discussions over our next podcast episodes that are coming up this year. So first, I think we could even start with federal issues, although they may not be state specific. These are big issues that are certainly going to impact employers all over the country. And many of these do have a state specific component as well. So we can start off in my bucket here of workplace safety and health and OSHA and similar state regulations. There are uh, several new things to keep uh, front of mind for 2024. OSHA has amended its record keeping and reporting requirements that require employers with 100 or more employees in certain industries that are going to have to submit not just the standard summary form, the 300A, as in years past, but they're also going to have to submit some information from their other logs, the 300 and the 301 incident reports. And if you're not sure whether you're in one of these lucky (laughs) industries, you have to comply with this new requirement. Uh, You can find out for certain on OSHA's website. It's Appendix B. You can quickly get to that from a, a search on OSHA's website. But it is important, of course, the big question that's on everyone's mind is what in the world is OSHA going to do with all of this data? Because it uh, ominously says that some of this data is going to be published. Uh, We don't know yet what that's going to look like, if it's going to be more statistical information or if companies might be called out specifically in certain ways. So only time will tell there. Um, If you're in a state that has a state OSHA plan, they will have requirements that are similar. They have to be at least as stringent as federal requirements. So even if you're thinking, 
oh, I don't have to worry about this because I have a state OSHA plan. There are likely new requirements for you as well. And California and Virginia are examples of that. Another issue that we're going to see more of in the workplace safety realm is heat, heat illness prevention. Uh, OSHA has a national emphasis program on heat illness prevention. We've been expecting to see some type of specific standard related to heat stress. And in the absence of OSHA coming out with one, there are now many states that have heat stress requirements, California, Washington, Oregon, to name a few. But even if they aren't already in place, there are many states that currently have bills pending that would have similar requirements. Even in Florida, we have several bills that could be related to heat stress if they pass during the legislative session. So that's another thing to keep top of mind or whether or not um, there would be specific heat stress prevention requirements for your area. I know that um, our friends at the NLRB have been very busy as well. <laughs> always. They're always busy. And so I was going to kick it over to Lucas to say what we should be on the lookout for when it comes to the national Yeah, I mean, so so I'll start just by saying there's there's some clear changes with the National Labor Relations Board. And then there's some maybe less clear things that might have an even bigger impact that we'll come back to as it relates to handbook policies at the very end of this, assuming we have time. The NLRB did issue their final rule on um, joint employment that became effective in December. It, uh, it takes effect now in 2024, but in my opinion, I don't think it has a tremendously huge impact. I mean, here's the reality of it with the National Labor Relations Board, but something that employers need to be mindful of. This is a great example of the pendulum swinging back and forth. What this rule effectively did is it brought us back to what was the standard under the Browning-Ferris decision from, I think it was 2015, under the Obama board, and, and the Trump board then in 2020 softened the standard, made it harder to establish joint employment. And this 2023 final rule that, that is about to take effect, it, it just reverts back to what was the standard under the Obama board. The takeaway for employers needs to be that the board is looking for joint employment relationships. And so anytime you have other people in your building providing services as part of your business, um, whether it's through contingent labor, staffing, temporary workers, we just need to be mindful of the of the possibility, if not likelihood, that these agencies will be looking to find the joint employment relationship. And along with that, Lucas, what about the DOL rule with regard to independent contractors? Yeah, so so this is another one where we see the pendulum swinging back and forth again. The the Trump Department of Labor issued some guidance. It was more in the nature of informal guidance on how to identify an independent contract relationship. And and that focused heavily on a couple of the factors of what is a broader six-factor test. What the DOL has done now is said, we don't want you to get bogged down on any specific factor. Focus on the entire six-factor test. We want this to be totality of the circumstances. In the end, it's it's really the it's the economic realities, but it's who controls the work of the person. I don't think that that from a legal perspective, this has a tremendous impact because the same test applies. 
whether we are focusing more heavily on one element or another, yet to be seen just how big of an impact that that has. But the same six factors applied during the Trump Department of Labor continue to apply now. Here is, again, the takeaway that I would say is we know that this administration is firmly of the opinion that workers should probably receive a W-2. Almost every worker should receive a W-2 from somebody. And so another just practical kind of assessment that you can do is assess as an employer, are there workers to whom we are issuing a 1099 in connection with our business activities? So just being intentional, knowing that this administration is ramping up enforcement on that issue as well. And so that leads us into some state-specific issues, because I know some state Department of Labor's, they view that particular issue a little differently than the federal D- Department of Labor. So with regard to all of our wonderful states that have taken upon themselves to um, pass all these laws... The question for both of you is, what kind of things are we going to see heat up with regard to multi-state issues for employers on a state level? Yeah, so I'm going to I'm going to start touching on that in just a second. Before I do, I will kind of bridge the federal to the state with one more comment, and that is a Supreme Court decision to keep an eye on. The, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in a case where they're looking about possibly overruling what's called Chevron deference. And and what that does is it gives deference to these federal agencies like the National Labor Relations Board, like the Department of Labor, as they interpret federal statutes to create rules, regulations that align with their enforcement priorities, as long as they are consistent with the statute. There is speculation that this case could see the the overruling of that standard, which could kind of throw a wrench in a lot of these agency actions that we just talked about with OSHA, with the National Labor Relations Board, with the Department of Labor, and a stronger judicial scrutiny of those types of decisions if it doesn't clearly align with the statute at play. Now, when we start seeing stuff like that, I promised I would bridge back to the state stuff. The logical next step is that states will start acting where the federal government is unable to accomplish what states want to see. One area that we're already seeing this is in the world of non Those of y'all who either have or have kept an eye on uh, protective covenants and these legal developments, we've seen a flurry of activity in 2023 at the federal level. Um, I'll start there very briefly just to say we saw the National Labor Relations Board opine on this issue and take the position that most non-competes, if not all non-competes, are unenforceable if they involve a non-supervisor. The FTC has come out and said something very similar and probably even broader to where it doesn't matter if it's a supervisor or not. They believe non-competes in general are too broad. Uh, We don't know what's going to happen with those federal pushes and preferences and enforcement priorities just yet, uh, whether they will come to fruition as they've been stated or looking very different. But what we do know is that states are starting to act. And so just as quick example, California, because this is a very timely example, implemented a law that 
says unequivocally, and we've all known this, those of y'all who are familiar with California covenant law, you can't enforce non-competes in California in, in an employment context. You just can't. And, and, and so that's always been the law. Well, now we've taken it one step further where the government is making employers push out notice to all current and former employees who are covered by non-competes, and and I'm going to come back to that in just a second, in the state of California to let them know that those are voided and will not be enforced. The law says it needs to be specific notice to employees, exactly what that means. We're not sure. As I promised, I'd come back to how the law defines what is and is not a non-compete is also not crystal clear. What we know is that the California statute appears to be, and we see no reason why it will not be interpreted very broadly. And so things that even are not obviously non-competition covenants will absolutely be covered by this requirement. So identify who you need to push those notices out to by Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. I was just going to (laughs) say, it is. (laughs) That's right. We don't know exactly what the penalty would be. The one thing we do know is that PAGA claims are alive and well in the state of California. And you don't want to get on the wrong side of one of those just because we dropped the ball on getting this notice out there. And speaking about Valentine's Day and some off-duty conduct and our other favorite topic, marijuana, tell us about some state updates there. So like non-compete laws, uh, marijuana laws are very state-specific. Of course, marijuana is still illegal under federal law, but there are many states that have legalized the use of marijuana. I think the count is up to almost 40 states that have legalized marijuana, either for medical marijuana or recreational. And I know uh, last November, Ohio, I believe, became the 24th state to legalize the recreational possession and use of marijuana. So it's certainly the trend, even if your state does not yet have recreational or medical marijuana, the trend is that we typically see states allowing medical use of marijuana first, and then eventually there are some protections for medical marijuana users. And then the next step seems to be that recreational use comes into play. So you need to know what the stance is in the various jurisdictions where you have employees. So the first question is, are you doing drug testing in these states? And if so, are there any limitations with respect to testing for marijuana specifically? Um, Some states limit what you can do. Some states don't limit it with respect to testing. But there may be some accommodations that you have to make to marijuana users, perhaps going through an interactive process when there are protections for medical or recreational users in a particular state. So it gets to be pretty complicated fairly quickly when it comes to marijuana. And I wanted to touch on that one thing that you said, Deanna, about trends. As we all know, this is an election year. And many times that has the impact on employment laws. So what are your thoughts, and Lucas, feel free to jump in. What are your thoughts on some of the trends or topics that we might see either in states 
or across um, a federal level. So I, I think when it comes to marijuana, certainly the trend is is being more lax with respect to expanding um, legalized use of marijuana pretty much across the country. I mean, in Florida, just as an example, we have uh, medical marijuana. Uh, we do not yet have recreational marijuana, and our medical marijuana statute doesn't specifically have protections for users yet, but there are bills that are pending that would provide that protection for public employees to start in Florida. So that's definitely something that, that we're seeing um, across the country there. Yeah, and, and just a couple of other points on, I mean, before we leave the topic of marijuana and, <laughs> and we talk about an election year. I haven't looked to see what all has been proposed for November, but something to just keep an eye on again is marijuana is one of these issues that so often is decided through ballot referendum. And, yeah. and, and unlike a lot of the other laws that we deal with in our world, politicians have this tendency to put it to the public for vote. I think it's because politicians just don't want to come on the wrong side of public sentiment on an issue like marijuana recognizing that whether, regardless of how you feel about it personally, we are at a point where the strong majority of Americans are supportive of legalizing marijuana in some shape or form. And that comes from the number of states that have already done it that Deanna mentioned, but also just a change in the climate of the country. And and so we know that, that it's popular. We know that that politicians don't want to make an unpopular decision. And so that's their solution. Put it, put it out for public vote mm-hmm. and let the public decide. And, and so I expect to see in this election cycle, just like every election cycle, there will be some states that put that on the ballot again and, and consider it. One other thing that, and this is purely speculation at this point, <laughs> but we see where President Biden has recently announced that that they are taking steps to decriminalize marijuana in many ways at the federal level, not changing its classification yet, not doing other stuff to change its status, but starting to very much take steps in that direction. What I will be fascinated to keep an eye on is as the federal government's enforcement approach to marijuana continues to change. As states continue to pass laws like what we see in California and Washington, where this year now they have statutes on the books based on their off-duty marijuana use, it will be interesting to see what courts start doing in terms of interpreting marijuana as being an illegal drug for accommodation purposes under the ADA and similar state laws. I mean, that's how we ended up on the no discrimination, need for accommodation on a state level up in the Northeast as those kind of dominoes started to fall was through their state version of the ADA. It's not a bridge too far to think that we may start seeing similar enforcement under the ADA as all of these different bodies of government start treating marijuana differently. Yeah, those are great points. And you know, I, I think another area where we will continue to see states jump in in the absence of uniform federal laws is when it comes to paid leave, right? Like I think most uh, multi-state employers now know that there are many different paid sick leave requirements and many FMLAs across the country. 
And that's a trend that I think we will continue to see. Illinois is one example where you've got different requirements for the state versus employees in Chicago versus employees in Cook County, and they're not staying the same. It seems like we're seeing changes on at least a quarterly basis there. Um, In California, there are over a dozen different paid sick leave requirements, depending upon which city and or counties you might have employees in in California. So that's definitely something to keep on the radar for this year. Yeah, I mean, like you mentioned, the the big number of states with marijuana, I think paid sick leave, just looking at statewide laws, we're up to the point where we're at about 15 states plus D.C., have paid sick leave laws on the books. Um, so, so we've officially reached about a third of the country. And, and it happens to be a lot of jurisdictions with a big population. And so there's a good chance it has a very meaningful impact on employer operations. That doesn't even take into account all of those localities <laughs> in, in California, Washington, Illinois, um, even Maryland, um, New Mexico. You have these localities, Minnesota, popping up all over the country that have taken it into their own hands. And so this is definitely one that you've got to keep a close eye on. Kind of segueing that into not paid sick leave, but other forms of paid leave, obviously make sure that we are mindful of where we do business and what any leave requirements are, be it paid or unpaid. We're seeing development and expansion of reasons for um, both paid and unpaid leaves all across the country. Bereavement leave and similar um, types of leave is is what I kind of call a leave du jour, where where it's become more and more popular. We saw Illinois pass this very expansive family bereavement law act and has since expanded it even further in situations where for example, a child is killed by murder or homicide or suicide. And and so bigger push there, California, if you have any reproductive loss, which can be miscarriage, it can also be an adoption falls through. Not something we would traditionally think of as bereavement leave, but fits loosely in that general category. The point is, as I said earlier, we got to be intentional about keeping up with all of these leave laws. Great resource, <laughs> our client portal, um, that, that we've spent a lot of time, resources developing. If multi-state compliance on things like leave, on things like wage and hour issues, if that is something you're struggling with, it's an amazing resource. And I know we're running short on time, so... Just looking at kind of our my list and speaking with you both over the last couple of days, I know there's issues coming up like data privacy in various states, pay transparency is a big one, and like Lucas mentioned, wage hour and minimum wage. What are some of your final thoughts, Deanna, on all of this? just say that it's important to keep these things in mind. And when you're going through your list of things you might want to accomplish this year when it comes to compliance, um, thinking about all of these as they relate to your employee handbooks and other policies, right? Like if you haven't dusted those off in a while, now's a good time to take a look to see if you might need to make any changes. I know over the past few years, many employers have 
um, hired employees remotely in other states, and perhaps this is their first kind of foray into having employees in different states. Um, even if they're remote, they still count. So think about these things and whether you might need to do a state-specific review of your employee handbook. And maybe you're just in one or two states now, but you're recruiting candidates from across the country. Pay transparency is important there. So our employment applications and screening requirements, those all have a multi-state component. So that's something else you might want to think about looking at this year are your kind of hiring and recruiting policies, employment application documents, offer letters, et cetera. Well, all I got to say is there are certainly more multi-state podcasts and issues to kind of dig in deep for 2024. I'm sure that they'll hear back from us, right? Absolutely. So please follow <laughs> us. Uh, we have a hashtag, hashtag OD multi-state. We'll have more of these episodes coming up for you. We appreciate you listening and hope that you'll join us again. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.